The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. This is the beginning. This is the day. You are watching the unfolding of one of history's great adventures. Man's colonization of space beyond the stars. TV satellite control, take over. Ladies and gentlemen, today the first of what may be as many as 10 million families per year is setting out on its epic voyage into man's newest frontier for colonization, deep space. Reaching out into other worlds from our desperately overcrowded planet, a series of deep thrust telescopic probes have conclusively established a planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri as the only one within range of our technology able to furnish ideal conditions for human existence. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 26, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh no, not right wing, just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And today, our theme for the whole show will be kind of an outer space theme, eh, Robert? Yeah, it is. And we are going to be looking at, uh, will it be capitalism or socialism in space? What will be the role of government for our first space pioneers? What is government's proper role? Last time we even looked at any issues to do with astronomy and the moon was way back in July '09 when we were talking about the exoplanets and, and man going to discover life on the various moons of other, even, even of some of our planets, eh, Robert? Yes. And, um, of course, we also looked at, quite a while ago at an issue of Enterprise in Space back on just right number 48 back in 2008, which is coming up again today on today's show. And in previewing the material for today's show... For those particularly interested, perhaps in our theme and topic today, might be an emotional roller coaster as we examine some of the cases for and against man's venture into space. We're going to hear optimistic views versus pessimistic views, sheer fantasy versus the harder realities of space travel. Why should we or shouldn't we go into space? How have mankind's plans for space travel changed in recent years? Is there still a space race? I was wondering about all these things myself, but we'll be delving into the realm of science fiction versus fact as well, speculating about future possibilities, short and long range, and we'll ask whether or not space travel must be practical, say, in, you know, in terms of being profitable or offering some return on investment or time. These questions are not as easy to answer as they may appear. So I thought I'd start, Robert, in our first quarter. had a couple of articles, two or three points of view on what is happening to the current space program in the south of the border under under the auspices of Mr. Obama. And the first I found was in the National Post. It's by Father Raymond D'Souza, priced out of the solar system. National Post, April 14, just this past month. And interesting his attitude, Robert. I'm still scratching my head about it. I don't know what you'd make of, of the tone and what he's saying about this. Is he, you know, he talks about being sad about the 
the space program not being there anymore, in at least the way we understood it. But again, he seems to be celebrating it. I'm not sure what he's saying here, but tell me what you think. He writes, In 1981, when NASA launched the first space shuttle, the lunar missions were fresh in the minds of our parents, and children were excited about the prospect of flying into space. But 50 years on, the thrill is gone. And shuttle flight, even the International Space Station, makes little news. Just before the end of its term, the Bush administration announced that the shuttle program would be succeeded by the Constellation manned space uh, flight program, with a planned return to the moon in 2020 and an eventual mission to Mars. Those plans did not last long. The Obama administration and Congress, citing the high costs of manned space flight, remember it's for high costs, cancelled Constellation. Until 2020, Americans will hitch a ride on a Russian rocket to send their astronauts to the space station, and after that, will likely rely on private companies to put astronauts into space, if there is to be human presence in space at all. I can't believe he put that in his sentence there. He writes, there's a sadness to all of this, even if the decisions are widely supported. Manned spaceflight is very expensive, and while keeping the country solvent is not as inspiring a goal as venturing into space, it is rather more urgent. You know, I see that and have to ask, well, why isn't it more inspiring? <laughs> you know, isn't keeping the country solvent its own challenge, really, unrelated to any government expenditure, per se? You'd think so, eh? Yeah, they're, they're unrelated. And after all, it's only solvent governments that can hope to fund space programs. Those are the only ones that have done it so far. So you can't, you can't disconnect these two issues, <laughs> not if the government's going to be in any sort of space program. And then he writes, another coincidence, too, is striking. I don't know that it's a coincidence. The shrinking away from manned space flight at, at the same time as increasing resources are being put towards fighting climate change suggests a drawing of the horizon. We seek not so much to break through the sky to the heavens, but to repair the sky, that it might better protect us against the heavens. Not going into space does not mean losing interest in matters spiritual, but something is noteworthy in the shift from conquering the vast unknown frontier to living in fear of what the frontier may do to us. That the American government is retreating from manned spaceflight doesn't mean that Americans won't be going into space. The government is not the people. The possibility of private companies taking a, a lead on exploration, scientific projects, commercial satellites, and even space tourism is not to be discounted. But that is to put the best face on what is clearly a retreat from the grand ambitions that captured Russians and Americans for the past half century. Then he writes how he was in Houston in 2003 when the, when the shuttle Columbia disintegrated in the sky above him. And he says, covering that story, I heard many brave voices about how America would return to space, even though they had just paid a heavy price in lives lost. Eight years later, there will be no return. The price can no longer be paid. What do you think? Is, is, is he lamenting the loss of the space program, or is he cheering it? I'm still not too sure. Actually, I found it interesting that when he said that um, if there be a human presence in space, and you said, can he say that at all? Actually, actually, I think that he may be more on the mark than, than you give him credit for. Well, you, you may could, have a point. It could very well be that there may be no human presence in space in the foreseeable future, and I'm actually going to talk about that later on. Well, you know, maybe the question asked is, what's the price of not going into space? Can we afford that? Um, you know, 
coming from this gentleman, I, you know, religious people are generally waiting for ends of worlds, not for discoveries of new ones, as we just saw this past weekend, right? I also found it, it interesting it, he talks about even space tourism as if that's just a, a small minor part in right. funding space flight, and yet I'm going to talk about that again, too. Good. Uh, okay, interesting. So you think he might have a point there, that I we might so. not even be in space. The whole thing might be. It's retreating. a valid point. Okay, well, here's, here's an economist from a couple of years ago, 2009, under Flying High is the name of the headline. America's government has no money for its human spaceflight plans. The private sector has plenty. Called the Augustine Report after its committee's chairman, Norman Augustine, it was commissioned by President Obama as an independent review of America's human spaceflight plans. On September 8, 2009, the review committee delivered its summary report. It now makes it more likely that the government will dispense with NASA's services entirely in low Earth orbit and ask private firms to, you know, to deliver crew to the station as well as cargo. Overall, the report is a healthy dose of reality for NASA. It warns that the agency's goals need to match its budget and that it needs to internationalize its efforts in order to make the most of its investments. For similar reasons, the report tells NASA to extend the life of the space station. Abandoning the station in 2015, as is now the plan, would probably impair America's ability to lead international partnerships in the future. Spending a quarter of a century building something and then scuttling it looks bad, even if the useful science that has been done on, the, on board could be written up on the back of a postage stamp. <laughs> hmm, that doesn't speak too well to the project, does nope. it? I'm just thinking, what, what if the post office is on strike? But uh, finally, there's the moon, he says. Should NASA go back? Mr. Augustine's committee offers several possibilities. It does not rule out a return, but it does describe something called a, quote, flexible path, end quote, for exploration. This might involve sending people to the moon, but might also involve asteroids and other places of interest. In other words, human exploration of the solar system does not have to be fixed doggedly on the moon first and Mars later. Such flexibility sounds appealing, but in the case of NASA, which struggles to maintain funding for long-term projects because of short-term political juggling, it is a mixed blessing. If the committee's recommendations are implemented, the agency might get, into, get much of what it wants, although more slowly than it would like. But there is a danger that without deadlines and without an agreed budget, it will end up very rapidly going nowhere at all. And that's how it sounds right now. And um, personally, I think you do have to go to the moon and to Mars in that order. I don't know that that's, maybe you'll have to, but I think that's the logical objective for it a number of reasons. It would seem logical, yeah. And we'll get into that a little later. And then finally, there is the, this is from the National Post, Charles Krauthammer, um, Krauthammer reprinted from the Washington Post on <coughs> July 18, 2009. <clears throat> and this one captures more of, I guess, my sentiment, Robert. And he says, uh, the, the heading is Bored with Space. And... Um, he says, he writes that the promise that we would return to the moon in 2020 was made by a previous president, and this president, he's talking about Obama now, has defined himself as the antimatter to George Bush. <laughs> good, good science, a science reference, eh? Moreover, for all of Barack Obama's Kennedy-esque qualities, he has expressed none of Kennedy's enthusiasm for human space exploration. We remain in retreat from space. <coughs> Astonishing. After countless millennia of gazing and dreaming, we finally got off the ground at Kitty Hawk in 1903. Within 66 years, a nanosecond in human history, we landed on the moon. Then five more landings, ten more moonwalkers, and in the, in the decades since, nothing. 
to be more precise, almost 40 years spent in low Earth orbit studying, well, zero-G nausea and sundry cosmic mysteries. We've done it with the most beautiful, intricate, complicated, and ultimately hopelessly impractical machine ever built by man, <laughs> the space shuttle. We turned this magnificent bird into a truck for hauling goods and people to a tinker toy we call the International Space Station, itself created in a fit of post-war internationalist absent-mindedness as a place where people of differing nationality can sing Kumbaya while being weightless. <laughs> <laughs> America's manned space program is in shambles. Following the retirement of the last space shuttle for the, for the first time since 1962, listen to this, the United States will be incapable not just of sending a man to the moon, but of sending anyone into Earth orbit. We'd be totally grounded. We'll have to beg a ride from the Russians or perhaps even the Chinese. So what, you say? Don't we have problems here on Earth? Oh, please. Poverty and disease and social ills will always be with us. If we waited for them to be rectified before venturing anywhere, we'd still be living in caves. Yes, we have a financial crisis, but all we need is sufficient funding from the hundreds of billions being showered from Washington, stimulus monies that will leave not a trace on our country or on our consciousness, to build constellation and get us back to Earth orbit and the moon a half century after the original landing. Why do it? It's not for the practicality. We didn't go to the moon to spin off cooling suits and freeze-dried fruit. Any technological return is a bonus, not a reason. We go for the wonder and the glory of it. Or to put it less grandly, for its immense possibilities. We choose to do such things, said JFK, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And when you do such magnificently hard things, you open new human possibilities in ways utterly unpredictable. <coughs> Look up from your Blackberry one night. That is the moon. On it are exactly 12 sets of human footprints, untouched, unchanged, abandoned. For the first time in history, the moon is not just a mystery and a muse, but a nightly rebuke. We came, we saw, we retreated. How could we? <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was a powerful piece. I disagree with him. I, I think you do. I think we're, we're going to be in a different frame of mind, you and I, on this. I think it's a good question, though. But here are some more opinions coming up on the subject. I find myself being pulled back and forth a bit. Like, like you know, I listen to you too, Robert, and I listen to these opinions that we're about to hear on what the most reasonable perspective on the question is. But this time around, what you're going to hear is specifically on whether or not we should be going to Mars. And our discussion will continue on the other side of these thoughts and messages. Space has become mundane. There have been 122 shuttle missions. Quick, bet you can't name one current astronaut or the bass player for Poison. You can't, but that doesn't stop NASA from having big plans. Plans for human missions to Mars and to worlds beyond. I'm Dan Barry. I'm a former NASA astronaut, and I flew three shuttle missions. Today, Dr. Barry has the suck job of building robots for his own company. Dr. Barry? What do you think about this plan to send humans to Mars? If we go to Mars and we establish a truly independent colony on Mars, there will be no single event that can wipe out the human species. And once we do that, this species will go on to the other planets, to the stars, and human beings will populate the galaxy. This is our chance. My name is Robert Park. I'm a professor of physics at the University of Maryland in College Park. And now we have to ask ourselves, is the future going to be humans in space? And my guess is no. The only planet 
so far that we could survive on at all is Mars. And, uh, and this is no bed of roses. Uh, you know, this is a, a cold, bleak, ugly place. Kuiper, editor of the New Atlantis and a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. There are two main reasons for sending human explorers to Mars. The first reason is that um, there's real science to be done there. We like science, especially the real kind. Tell us more. There's a lot that you can learn on Mars. Mars has an atmosphere, it's got water, and these are the precursors for life here on Earth. If you can find maybe traces of life, evidence that life either once existed on Mars or that may even exist there now, that would change the way that we think about life in the universe. That would be pretty amazing. And it's not like it's full of radiation or anything. The universe is bathed in radiation. Oh. And we're protected down here on Earth by the combination of our atmosphere and our magnetic field. No magnetic field on Mars and almost no atmosphere. We don't really, at this point, know how to get a human being there alive. Getting them there is a good deal less than half the problem. So let's just send robots. We already have two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, on Mars, and they made all kinds of discoveries. And unlike Laika, the first live rover in space, Little Teller won't be heartbroken when these rovers are left in space to die. Human explorers can make judgments and quick judgments on the scene in a way that robots, even the most artificially intelligent robots that have been devised so far, um, they, they just can't keep up with humans. I think that it is worth the risk and worth the cost. That's right. There are things no machine could or would do in space, things that only man can. When Dan stepped outside the space shuttle and saw the Earth in all its splendor, he was doing that for all of us. So the science was important. The fact that a human being was seeing what people have longed for since the dawn of time was also important. Cool matters. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we're talking about whether or not mankind will actually find itself venturing out into space, perhaps in the way we've been watching in shows like Star Trek and other science fiction uh, and fantasy shows, which I guess, Robert, you're going to be looking at a little bit closer next in the next half hour, are yes, you? Yes, I will, yeah. Well, you know, I hear these people talking about, will we go into space? And I think this question's already moot. We're already there. We're there now, and we're going to stay there. We're going to keep going there. And I think the reason is, because the necessary element is finally entering into space, and it's called capitalism. And it's called free enterprise and free markets, because the government can't do the job. That's why I disagreed with that one person you were giving the opinion of. He um, was looking at the government that's, to look, you're look you're, for the you're, glory of going to the moon I, or whatever. I agree with you in that sense, but I think you're, you're getting misdirected by that message. I think that's a side issue, really. But just to, to give us an idea of what's going on, again from The Economist, September 12, 2009, Flying High, that same article. And they write about what's happening in developments in the private sector. And they write that five years ago, the idea that the private sector might have been capable of transporting cargo and people reliably into low Earth orbit was viewed as crazy. Much has happened since, and two things in particular. 
One was that Virgin Galactic, an upstart British firm, said it would develop a space tourism business based around a craft that had cost only $25 million to build. And that's the, that's the craft we took a real close look at on the show here a couple years ago and even put a picture of it on our site. Remember, Robert? I do, yeah. The other was that an equally upstart American entrepreneur called Elon Musk, flush from his sale of PayPal, created a company called SpaceX. He said he wanted to make it cheaper to launch people into space and wanted, ultimately, to send a mission to Mars, but that he would start by launching satellites. It would be an understatement to say that both ventures were treated with skepticism, but they've now come far enough to be able to thumb their noses at the critics. SpaceX has signed a contract worth $50 million with Orbcom, a satellite communications firm, to launch 18 satellites for its network. Abar Investments, a sovereign wealth fund based in Abu Dhabi, bought a 32% stake in Virgin Galactic for $280 million. Abar was not just interested in space tourism, but was also keen on a proposal to use Virgin's White Knight launch system to put satellites into Earth orbit. Over at SpaceX, <coughs> the company was given a $1.6, get this, billion dollar contract to send cargo to the space station. Orbital Sciences, a firm that has been around since 1982, was awarded $1.9 billion to do the same thing. This was the first time that NASA has included private launch vehicles in its own planning. The reality being that with the space shuttle about to retire, the only other option was buying space on Russian rockets, which I guess didn't look too good on the surface. And then finally, this is just from uh, just last month, um, Financial Post magazine, in an article called The Outer Limits by Peter Coven talking about mining the moon and the Arctic and underwater. And he says these one-time crazy ideas are fast becoming reality. Uh, Professor Greg Baden of Laurentian University and Chairman and Chief Technology Officer of Sudbury, Ontario-based Penguin ASI has spent more than a decade working on complex optical communication systems and remote-controlled robotics for mining. This is where I think the future is, Robert, robotics. I keep talking about that, eh? The technology eventually caught NASA's attention, and the U.S. Space Agency is dead serious about using some of it to drill holes in the moon. The mere thought must strike horror in the hearts of environmentalists everywhere. <laughs> That's just, I don't know why they put that in there. There is, however, logic behind moon mining. A 2009 NASA mission showed the moon potentially holds massive reserves of water. Shipping water from Earth to outer space is extremely costly. You know how much it costs for one bottle? $10,000 U.S. You're smiling. <laughs> <laughs> but with an affordable supply already on location, NASA could then use the moon water to refuel satellites in orbit or convert the water into oxygen to breathe. Mining technology can also play a key role in constructing an underground moon base, which is a long-time goal of NASA, to ex or to extract a scarce commodity called helium-3, thought to be abundant on the moon that is useful for nuclear fission. For a long time, I thought, nah, moon mining is never going to happen. Now I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, says Baden, a former senior executive at INCO. Some experts think it could be as soon as 2020. Now, what do you think, Robert? Yeah. I have to look at the, the reason to go to moon and is it proper or not. And I think the only reason that a government should be involved in going to the moon is because our enemies, or our potential enemies, are going to be, be doing it and they're going to be lay, uh, laying claim to territory up there and uh, there's nothing anybody can do about it. So free nations should um, go to the moon only to stake a claim to territory that our potential enemies might claim and uh, to have that presence there. Mining, 
the thing the thing about no, the water me, on the me, moon. Let me, let, let's talk about that sure. suggestion. I agree in the sense that you're, what you're saying is maybe the governments themselves. I don't see how a lot of this is going to be done without government funding, but going to the moon on their own. But what happens if, say, an American entrepreneur goes to the moon? Doesn't the government kind of go with him? Are they not the jurisdiction under which he operates? Did he not launch under their jurisdiction? Doesn't government have to go where the people go? No. No? Nope. I think that once you leave the sovereign territory of your country, uh, you're on your own. But I don't necessarily disagree with the fact that if um, a sizable number of, let's say, Americans uh, want to establish something on the moon and the government sees it in their interest to protect them, then they can go along and stay, okay, this particular spot, this is our, this is our spot, it's American soil, and um, uh, we are the law here. It's not a lawless land, much like they did when they colonized the West of the United States. Using the homestead principle. The homesteading principle, I, yes. I think that's exactly what will happen, but we have to bear in mind this is, will not only apply to the moon and other places in space. You even told me something yesterday about what were those points called in space that they might Lagrange want? points. Lagrange points. That's are, actually, I mean, uh, for people who don't know, Lagrange points are places in in, in space, no land. Right, not, on, not on a planet. That where the gravity of two, two or three particular uh, space bodies uh, balance out, and you can actually have uh, space stations there and... Uh, Which would uh, make those little satellites. points in space valuable to Those people, points in space possibly. are valuable, and actually those points in space are starting to uh, be a little crowded. Interesting, yeah. um, because the same issue is going to apply to the Earth, not just the Moon. Because, as they pointed out in that same article in, in the um, in the Financial Post magazine, international waters make up forty percent of the world's surface still that aren't claimed by any particular nation. And so, generally, it has always been assumed, and it's proper, I would say, that first come, first serve. The first person who who, who begins to develop a resource or develop a quote property, which means ownership, mm -hmm. doesn't mean land, it means ownership. Um, it would be up to them when to decide when, when they would need a government, would you think? I, I, I'd agree, yeah. So I think these are some of the very fundamental issues that have to be resolved in advance, hopefully before conflicts over jurisdictions and claims over space and planet property become a problem. But are we really a long way from that today, you think? Oh, <laughs> a really long way. I, I disagree with all of the people that you've been talking about see things within 20 years, 30 years, whatever. I'm thinking more hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of years. Boy, you're a, you're a downer. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I'm not going to get on that trip in my lifetime? I'm being practical and I'm being realistic given the uh, level of science and uh, government and uh, motivation we have today. Well, if what you say is true... In what perspective do you put things like um, China and Japan and all their interests going into space? They're starting to have a direct interest in the moon and going to the moon. Yeah, they can have the direct interest all they want until they do it, though. It's all speculation. Um, in, even India said that they're going to well, be sending... Well, that, that's true of anything, isn't it? What if you and I were sitting here right now and, it, and the year was 1899 and we're talking about going to the moon? You'd be, you, what would you be saying? I'm sure you'd say, well, that can't happen for 10,000 years. No, I wouldn't say that necessarily <laughs> at all. It's hard to speculate uh, hypothetically, but remember why America went to the moon in the first place. It wasn't because it was hard. It was because the Russians were going to do it, and they were mortal enemies. And Kennedy gave his speech to say that we're going to do this thing, not because it's easy, because it's hard. Wrong, sorry. We did it because the Russians are going to do it, and if they do it, then we're doomed. How, how interesting you should bring that up, because... Um, Which, by the way, was the proper reason to go to the moon. 
Which was improper? Uh, to, to go to the moon, because your enemies are going to do it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, Ayn Rand wrote in 1969 when she went to see Apollo 11 and the objectivist. She said, mm. if the government deserves any credit for the space pr program, it is only to the extent that it did not act as a government. That is, it did not use coercion in regard to its participants, which it did use in regard to its backers, the taxpayers, right? <laughs> but at least the yes. people who are going and the people who are in the industry aren't forced to be there. Of you course, know, that's, yes. that's, that's a big difference. Oh, yeah. And she says, what is relevant in this context is the fact that all of, our uh, of all our government programs, the space program is the cleanest and the best. It at least has brought the American citizens a return on their forced investment. Or it has worked for its money. It has earned its keep, which it cannot be said about any other program of the government, mainly because they don't have clear objectives. You know, you can say, let's go to the moon, and you got there, and you go, huh, it's done. We By did the it. way, that is why we are no longer on the moon, because the objective was achieved. Achieved, and they didn't create a new one in time. That's And right. they didn't think ahead. But this is interesting what she says here, and this sounds like what you just said. She says, there is, however, a shameful element, shameful she used, in the ideological motivation, or at least the publicly alleged motivation, that gave birth to the space program. John F. Kennedy's notion of a space competition between the United States and Soviet Russia. And she says, a competition presupposed some basic principles held in common by all competitors, such as the rule of the game in athletics or the function of the free market in business. The fundamental significance of Apollo's triumph is not political, it is philosophical. The lunar landing as such was not a milestone of science, but of technology. Technology is applied science. And the greatest achievements of science are invisible. They take place in a man's mind. They occur in the form of a connection integrating a broad range of phenomenon. And Apollo's flights made such abstractions as rationality, knowledge, science, perceivable in the direct and immediate context. So she wasn't even looking at it from a militaristic point of view. She was looking at it purely for the science of it. For no, the, I think she was looking at it because she was odd. She, she was odd by it. Yeah. She was odd by how the human mind and ideas can achieve such a great technological event. And I have to agree with her. I am awed by the whole thing as well. Uh, it's amazing what we've done in such a short time when you think, yeah. you know, we, we just invented the car in the past century and we're still having problems <laughs> dealing with our roads. Well, let's take a quick break now here at the bottom of the hour. This next clip you're going to hear, I think, is um, just before the commercials. Um, to me, the reason why we'll be going in the space in the long term. I, I, to me, I don't look at it as a term of, in terms of today, tomorrow, 20 years, 1,000 years. It's going to happen. It's happening now. And how fast it happens, I don't think anyone can predict. But nevertheless, we're going to try after this. So, Commander, after all you've just gone through, I have to ask you the same question a lot of people back home are asking about space these days. Is it worth it? Should we just pull back, forget the whole thing is a bad idea, and take care of our own problems at home? No. We have to stay here. And there's a simple reason why. Ask ten different scientists about the environment, population control, genetics, and you'll get ten different answers. But there's one thing every scientist on the planet agrees on. Whether it happens in a hundred years, or a thousand years, or a million years, eventually our sun will grow cold and go out. When that happens, it won't just take us. It'll take Marilyn Monroe, and Lao Tzu, and Einstein, and Moroputo, and Buddy Holly, and Aristophanes, and all of this. 
all of this was for nothing. Unless we go to the stars. up in our imagination for tens of thousands of years and the disappointment was crushing I was on the moon one day. when astronaut Gene Cernan stepped off the lunar surface for the last time it was no giant leap for mankind but the last stumble of a dying era NASA cancelled the next three moon missions and quietly drew the Apollo program to a close. Cernan was the last human being ever to walk on the moon. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can give us a call if you prefer to call at 519-661-3600. And you can find our broadcasts also on our website at justrightmedia.org, where we archive all of our shows. An interesting discussion today, we're talking about colonizing the moon, colonizing Mars, space flight, going to the stars. And I had to ask myself before I even begin this segment, why would I be interested in something like this? I'm not going to be alive when, when they build these stations in space and these places on the moon and Mars. How can you say that? They're, they're doing it now, right? Well, they've got a space you, you in You've got a space. telescope in your back. But it, ha <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with my life and my existence. Why would I be interested in this? And I think the answer is what you talked about before, Bob, with Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. I am awed by the use of technology and how a man's minds and ideas can be used to create such fantastic machines. I'm awed by it. People have their sports interests, I'm interested in this. Like you say, I have a telescope. As a matter of fact, um, just got it not too long ago. I was out the other night. First night in, in so many weeks that you can actually go out without being rained on oh, and yeah. the cloudy skies. What a horrible spring we're having. But I was out watching uh, Saturn the other night. And um, so I do have a, a very uh, high interest in all of this. But it's just out of awe. It's not out of um, self-interest in the sense of it has anything to do with my life. And I know a lot of people go about their daily lives out there and they, they don't even look up at the sky. They know nothing about the moon or Mars or the planets or our, our surrounding local group of stars or anything like that. But I've been following it since I watched the uh, moon landings back in the 60s because I was around then and so were you and I'm sure that you saw them on television too. Mm -hmm. I remember exactly where I was. Yep. And um, so that's why we're, we're talking about this. I'm going to call this little segment Ad Astra with a question mark. Ad Astra means to the stars. And that last clip mm. we heard to referred to the myths that we created about the moon. We created other myths regarding some of the other planets. And today we're creating myths and fantasies about deep space. We envisage other races, mostly human, by the way, in form. And oddly enough, most of them speak English. We Universal translator. 
<laughs> yeah, with the know, program. At least in Star Trek, they explain it with a universal translator. Yeah. Not it's, every it's show. It's buried right here behind your ear. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where they put it. It's amazing. Their lips actually uh, seem to sync with the English as well. Yeah, it works well. Now, we fantasize about traveling to other star systems as easily one might uh, travel across town to visit a friend. Yet... Just as when our myths were dispelled about, for example, the moon being made of green cheese when we first landed on the moon, our myths about colonizing other planets and visiting other stars, I think, will be dispelled as well. In fact, with remarkable advances in astronomy and our ever-increasing knowledge of the laws of physics and the limits of physics, we can dispel many of these fantasies now. By our uh, conservative estimates to date, we can surmise there are millions of planets circling the stars in our own galaxy. The Kepler mission to detect planets surrounding about 100,000 stars in the uh, constellation Cygnus has, in only a few months of operation, provided us with 1,235 possible planet candidates to add to the 552 extrasolar planets we've already confirmed exist. And we documented them all here on this show. Yep, and that, those numbers are <laughs> accurate as of yesterday. Yeah. Now, given that Kepler... Wow, that's amazing. That's it am- is that's absolutely amazing. amazing. Now, this is more amazing, given that Kepler is only looking at 0.25% of the sky. We can extrapolate that number, I think, to 494,000 planets within Kepler's visual, within a, a field similar to Kepler. And you honestly think Captain Kirk's not floating around out there somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> the odds are looking better all uh, the time. boy, Bob, tell me. <laughs> and Kepler can only detect planets that cross in front of their parent star, so that small number swells to millions if we consider planets orbiting at a different plane than edge on to us. So the potential for planets out there is phenomenally great. Now, even with these discoveries of extrasolar planets... The nearest Earth-like, that is, rocky planet, we can find in a what's called a Goldilocks zone. In mm-hmm. other words, not too hot, not too cold. Where it's oh, just right. We're just right. Yeah, yeah where water right. can exist as a liquid right usually. Is 20.3 light years away. It's called Gliese 581G, and it may theoretically be suitable for life, although the planet is three times the mass of Earth. So it's not Alpha Centauri. Nope, not Alpha Centauri, not Barnard's star, See? nothing really close. As a matter of fact, there are 88 other planets, Bob, is closer Centauri, to us than Gliese 581. Is Alpha Centauri, though, the nearest star to Earth? That's what I was uh, always taught. Proxima Centauri is a red dwarf. It's part of the Alpha Centauri uh, system. It's a trinary star system. And matter of fact, some people think that Proxima Centauri isn't even part of the, the oh. system. It's just passing but through. That aside, it's around, what, four or five light years away? Something uh, 4. like that? 4.3 of memory serves, yeah. And... I can see that's why they picked it for the Lost in Space series. It was a nice close one to get to. Yeah. Um, four light years. That, how long would that take at the top speed we could do today? Um, about 6,000 years. Oh. As a matter of fact, I've got some figures here. Let me see. Go by in a blink if you're frozen. Let's see. The, fir- <laughs> the fastest object we've ever created was called Helios 2. And back in the 60s, uh, oddly enough, went to the sun. And it achieved a speed of 252,792 kilometers uh, per hour. That is one 4,470th of the speed of light. At that rate, it would take uh, 6,450 years. No, that's not right. We're going to be putting up a probe called Solar Probe Plus. It's going to reach about 200 kilometers a second, three times faster than Helios 2. It would, at that speed, take 6,450 years to reach Alpha Centauri A and B. Yep. So that's why this is going to be Line a pessimistic talk. Yeah. <laughs> Voyager 1, which is uh, heading out of the solar system, 
at uh, 17 kilometers a second would take 70,000 years to reach our nearest star if it was headed in that direction, which it isn't. Now, a few years ago, a message was actually sent to Gliese 581G by radio astronomers. Now, let's speculate that if we got an answer back from an intelligent civilization that may exist there, we would receive a response 40 years later than the message that we sent. It'll be a little difficult to carry on a conversation, even at the speed of light. So, that yeah, begs the question. You know what the, the message will be. If you guys got subspace, <laughs> <laughs> tune in quick. You know, all these science fiction things that they had to solve these major problems with, eh? just for, for science fiction fantasy purposes. All of these things are you devices. You couldn't even have a conversation. They're yeah. devices to, to advance a story. Mm. There's no such thing as going through warp speed and all this stuff. It's just a device. So that begs the question, could we possibly even go to uh, Gliese 581G? Now, the British Interplanetary Society, which, by the way, I was a member of oh, many years ago, uh, just to get their subscription to their magazine, um, speculated back in the 70s on sending a 450-ton unmanned payload to Barnard's star, which, by the way, is the next nearest star uh, to us from Alpha Centauri. It lies about six light years away. They calculated that a vast spacecraft, 190 meters in length, weighing about 50,000 tons and powered by internal confinement fusion, uh, which doesn't really exist, but is within the realm of what you might call near-future technologies. Mm -hmm. They can see that it can be developed sure. with the right time and money. Now, that craft, called Project Daedalus, could reach a velocity of about 12% c, or the speed of light, and reach Barnard's star in about... 46 years. That doesn't sound too bad. Mind you, it's a one-way trip because they're not going to stop. Um, it wasn't designed to decelerate, in other words, and they'd be put into orbit. So double that time if you want a payload to stay there. So 90-odd years, 92 years. Because you have to spend half of that time slowing down. Exactly. If yeah. you spent uh, two years propelling yourself there, you'd have to turn around and, and decelerate for two years, that kind of a thing. Now, the same vessel traveling to Gliese 581G at that speed would take 307 years. So 307 odd years to visit the nearest of what we think, what we think is the nearest Earth-like planet, obviously out of the realm of a lifetime. So if we were to send a manned vessel, this was just a payload, by the way, 450-ton payload of scientific instruments. If we were to send a manned vessel, it would have to be a generational ship where people would be born, live, and die for many generations, many thousands, before it reached its destination. So it would have to be orders of magnitude larger and therefore requiring much more fuel and would take, instead of 307 years, perhaps tens of thousands of years to reach only the nearest Earth-like planet tens of thousands of years. The cold, hard reality is that one cannot propel any appreciable quantity of matter anywhere near the speed of light. So a visit to any nearby star is absolutely out of the question, not only with our crude technologies we have now, but even with near-future technologies like internal confinement fusion. But what about such exotic notions like warping space, antimatter engines, which are 100% efficient, wormholes, etc.? Now, these are pure... Oh, antimatter is a real thing, isn't it? Uh, it is a real thing, but it only exists in very, very minuscule quantities, and it requires a lot of uh, magnetic constricting fields to actually... It's one of those things a lot it. of people think is, is totally science fiction. Oh, no. Yeah. No, it's, it's been created in the lab, for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, but like I said, uh, extremely small quantities. 
and it's completely annihilated if it ever comes in contact with matter uh, well, in a 100 percent sure. uh, reaction that's its advantage i would think yeah no that is exactly what its uh, advantage is so all of these things like uh, warping space, antimatter engines, wormholes. Uh, by the way, not antimatter, but antimatter engines, mm -hmm. right? Uh, by the way, that may not be fantasy in the future. That may be achievable, antimatter engines, but the rest of it, pure fantasy. Just like a Vulcan mind meld, fantasy. A device in science fiction shows. The only thing we know of that, uh, that can warp space is matter. And gravity is so weak. Just consider this, Bob. Every time you lift your arm... You're defeating the gravitational pull of the entire planet. That's how weak our own massive planet warps the space around it. Or so you're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe it just shows how strong we are. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. You know. You're, you're a guy who the glass is half full, right? <laughs> Always look at it that way. Yeah. Looking forward. Wormholes. Wormholes <laughs> exist only as a speculative mind game in, uh, of cosmologists. And even if they did exist, to, to enter one, so to speak, would crush you and your ship to an infinitesimal size. Absolutely out of the question. Nope. Traveling to the stars will have to be left to our far far distant offspring who would be living in vast vessels i surmise probably not too dissimilar to science fiction's babylon 5 station that we heard a clip from earlier mm -hmm. it would be um, roaming interstellar space taking tens of thousands of years to visit even the closest of stars once there they might colonize any habitable planet or even terraform what uninhabited planets or uninhabitable planets there may be but you know something i think more likely more likely still is that they would not even see the necessity of leaving their space station home, which would be self-sufficient anyway, to be even to travel to such places. Well, you know, I, I wonder about that concept, that yes, it would be huge, and yes, it would be like a huge fish tank for people in space, you know. <laughs> but self-sufficiency, if you wanted to develop something new, how, what would the people in such a... Uh, an enclosed environment do for their, even for their culture and for their advancement if all they've got is this fixed amount of material that exists in the ship they couldn't go out and mine for, for new material to expand they'd it would have, all have to be there well no I think what they'd be doing is mining space and doing all the same things you do on earth but doing it as you're going along on your trip and I'll bet you there's lots of asteroids moving along pretty close at the same speed well. I, I just I just see that as the only way for a civilization to remain a civilization. I don't think you could put a bunch of people in a in a box and expect them to remain people after ten thousand years. I don't know. Well, the Babylon's five space station, as a, an example, was huge and vast. It was almost a little world, and it was a whole itself. culture, and people yeah. were coming in and out and everything. But you know what I mean. We're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to be uh, bringing the conversation a little more to home, maybe to Saturn or Jupiter. When we come back after this. Captain's log, stardate 45376.3. We're approaching the planet Balana 3, where a new method of propulsion known as the Soliton wave is being developed. The Enterprise has been asked to participate in one of the first tests of this new technology. <laughs> Data! Data, isn't this exciting? We are going to witness a moment in history. Every nanosecond in this continuum is a moment in history, once it has elapsed. No, 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 no. I mean, we are going to see something that people will talk about for years. I mean, think about it. No more bulky warp engines or nacelles. A ship just generates a soliton wave and then rides it through space like a surfboard. This is going to be like being there to watch Chuck Yeager break the sound barrier or Zephyrin Cochran engage the first warp drive. It should be interesting. Very exciting. 
talking to the wrong crowd. Do you recognize me? I'm the captain and I need answers. Do my best to provide. Who are you? Or what? I am a traveler. Traveler? What is your destination? Destination? Yes. What place are you trying to reach? Ah, place. No, there is no specific place I wish to go. Then what is the purpose of your journey? Curiosity. That's not an answer. I have certain abilities. They give me a knowledge of propulsion. I've been trading this for passage on Starfleet vessels. Captain, I seek only transportation in order to see and experience your reality. I am no threat to you, your ship, or your crew. Our reality? And in order to satisfy this curiosity, you have brought my ship and my crew into grave risk. I have made some mistakes. Some mistakes? What mistakes could possibly explain these incredible explosions of velocity? I don't know if I can put this in terms you'll understand. I believe that there may be a warp speed that can get us beyond Galaxy M33. But there is no velocity of any magnitude that can possibly bring us wherever this is. Is it true what our navigational sensors are telling us? Are we... Are we millions of light years away from where we were? Yes. But what got us here? Thought. Thought? You do understand, don't you, that thought is the basis of all reality. The energy of thought, to put it in your terms, is very powerful. I have the ability to act like a lens which focuses thought. That's just uh, so much nonsense. You're asking us to believe in magic. <laughs> oh, yes, this, this could seem like magic to you. No. No. That actually makes sense to me. Only the power of thought could explain what has been happening, especially out here. Thought is the essence of where you are now. You do understand the danger, don't you? Chaos. What we think is what happens. It pains me I was so careless, Captain. My intent was only to observe, not to cause this. You should not be here until your far, far distant future. Now, a more reasonable approach, I think, <laughs> to... Thought, <laughs> the basis of all reality, that's wacko. Yeah, that's a very subjective versus objective philosophy, isn't it? Well, what you think occurs. If I'm not thinking about you, I guess you don't exist. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Likewise, buddy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be a little more down-to-earth, shall we say. A more reasonable approach to off-Earth colonization, I think, would involve <clears throat> traveling by... not by fictional Star Trek soliton waves or by focusing thought through some kind of lens. What utter stupidity and nonsense. It makes it easy, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It'll involve propellants that don't defy logic or reason or the laws of physics. Chemical rockets can get us to the moon. We know that. We've been there. We've done it. And I have no doubt that within a reasonable amount of time, and by reasonable I mean like 200 years maybe, 
uh, we may have a sizable permanent habitat on the moon. But I don't think what there's going to what's going to drive populating moon will be government or resource mining. It'll be tourism. Tourism. To date, there have already been seven space tourists, including one Canadian, Guy Le Liberté, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil. Mm-hmm. Now, each of these has paid as much as $35 million to ride, up, um, ride around the world into the International Space Station as guests of Russia. I'm waiting until the price comes down. Uh, same here. Yeah. <laughs> I'd go. I'd, I'd, I'd take the trip. Would you? Would, would you? I don't know. You know, I watch yeah. people doing that, and most of the time they're spending half their time up-chucking. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I want to spend my time I, doing I do that. get motion sickness. Yes. Uh, it will be uh, people like these, though, I think, that'll who, who bankroll a space tourism industry, uh, tourism industry in, which will see routine suborbital flights for people wishing to experience free fall. By the way, I've experienced free fall. Yeah? Yeah. All you have to do is go up in a little plane and stall it. <laughs> oh, yes, you fly, don't you? So yeah, you, just, you uh, go up and you stall your, stall your plane, and then you what do you do? You fall. flying with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must take you up sometime. Uh, space station, hotels for extended stays. Who cleans stays, the plane up afterwards? <laughs> and a chance to get into the 100-mile-high club Ooh, wow. will eventually, and eventually hotels on the moon. That's what I envision is going to happen. The money these tourists pay for such adventures will allow offshoot industries to help build and maintain these space stations and moon habitats and these offshoot industries, I think, will have to house the workers and support staff. And that's how a society and a permanent station is going to be created, I think. The moon's first permanent settlement may start out resembling um, a small adventure tourist destination like here on Earth. Not unlike... Not unlike Las Vegas, for example. <laughs> How did Las Vegas start? Bugsy Siegel wasn't it? Wasn't his, his name? He started off a hotel, a gambling casino was, yeah. in the in the middle of the desert, an absolutely inhospitable place. And what happened? You now have a city of what? I don't even know what the population on there is. A million people, all based on well, tourism. It's, it's interesting because you know I always said the reason to go into space is to sell something to somebody. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and once you've got people there, then people will be going. Now, following such small steps as that, we may find the mega-rich willing to fund tourism to places like Mars, although I believe such a technical undertaking may take several hundreds of years to get to the level where it can be done routinely. Now, aside from the Moon and Mars, I believe that there are no other destinations in our solar system which merit any form of permanent habitat, primarily due to the extreme hostility uh, hostile nature of every other planet and moon in our solar system. That being said, I do think that the majority of off-world colonization will be space stations, like I said before with interstellar flight, which may be set up in orbit around the other planets and their moons. Basically, so as it's certainly a more logical place to start. I think sure. so. Yeah, because you create your own habitat; it's already there. Why go down into the gravity well of some inhospitable world and try to set up shop there? I mean, that's that is so unreasonable. I think now, practically, I speaking, I see the colonization of our own solar system happening. I do think that it will happen. Yes, but happen very, very slowly perhaps taking several thousands of years in my estimation, thousands, just because of the sheer amount of energy, time, money, resources. Uh, the, the danger of it is just so vast and complex that it's going to take a long time. Uh, 
And just because we have the International Space Station up there uh, doing virtually no science, by the way, because it's not even a zero-G environment, it's a microgravity environment with a lot of vibrations and, and, and things like that, I think it's just a political, political event rather than anything else. Just because we have that doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow we're going to be uh, sending off people to live on Mars for a permanent uh, stay. It's not happening, at least not for a long time. Now, in the far, far distant future, we may one day terraform Mars, terraform it, make it like Earth, make an atmosphere thick enough to live in without a spacesuit and perhaps even breathe without an oxygen mask. This process, you now, from my understanding, because I've read about this before many years ago, it will take tens of thousands of years. Well, Robert, I but I believe it'll be done. Uh, I believe it'll be done. Uh, as do I. I don't know that your time frame is as realistic as you think. I, well, I think I, again, you're hopeful, but I, I think you got to be down to earth. No, about I look. It. I look at history. I look at look at how cheap it is for an individual to fly almost into space on a on a jetliner and go across the ocean in minutes which a hundred years ago would have cost a thousands and thousands of dollars to uh, do. we're talking a whole different kettle of fish here but, Bob but I think with all the entrepreneurs this is where I'm saying capitalism will make a difference when you've got a million scientists a million people working on it all uh, independently now I somebody's agree with gonna you there. come up with something I agree with you there that any such grand adventures will only occur with private industry running the show and government protecting their right to do so but eventually I think we'll only have two planets to call home uh, Mars and Earth and several perhaps hundreds or thousands of enormous self-sustaining space stations orbiting every celestial body in the solar system and some even venturing out into deep space to slowly and gradually add to an ever-expanding sphere of humanity. That, I think, will happen, given we don't kill ourselves off in the first place, but it'll happen. So I'm, I'm optimistic, but the timeline, I totally disagree with every other person. Well, we won't know whether we're right or wrong, but maybe some listener to a rerun of this show 200 years from now will be able to tell which one of us was right. <laughs> <laughs> Time to go. Hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Color into black and white Under the Everything will be alright We, as a planet, Earth Anybody? Um, here's the thing. We have been sending messages into outer space to extraterrestrials. We're trying to communicate with aliens, and basically, our message is, hey, here we are, come on down. Yeah, I think that's a bad idea. So, if they can come here, they're smarter than us, and then they know they're smarter than us, too, because we've been beaming cops into outer space, so... They know they're smarter. They're probably going to call us up as a, as a joke and say, hey, here's where we are. Why don't you come on up? You know? What are we going to say back to that? You know? How about we meet you on the moon? Uh, right. It's not that impressive, the moon. And uh, especially when you consider we can only send three guys and one of them has to wait in the car. So, yeah.